I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. I'm going to start with a question today. You know that feeling that you sometimes get when you're in a room full of people and you just know that you're the least intelligent person in the room? That's me right now. For one very simple reason. I am joined by not one, not two, but three of the world's most highly regarded experts of the Napoleonic era. Why, I hear you say? Well, because we're going to right a wrong that's been preceded uh, on this podcast up until now, we are going to look at the politics of this period, and specifically the politics of war. Joining me to discuss this are Professor Beatrice de Graaf, a Napoleonicist regular who is a distinguished professor of history of international relations at the University of Utrecht. She's the author of Fighting Terror After Napoleon, How Europe Became Secure After 1815. Also joining me is Professor Alex Mikabaridze. Alex is Professor of History and Ruth Herring Noel Endowed Chair for the Curatorship of the James Smith Noel Collection at Louisiana State University, Shreveport. Alex is the author of The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, and a number of works on the Russian perspective of the Napoleonic Wars. And last but by no means least, we have Professor Charles Esdale. Charles is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Liverpool and author of, amongst a whole host of other books, Napoleon's Wars, The Peninsula War, A New History, and famously once described Napoleon as being like a squirrel. That is to say, he's a rat with great PR. It's brilliant to have all of you on. Um, Beatrice, welcome back. Charles and Alex, welcome to the Napoleon Assist for the first time. How are you all doing? That was quite an introduction, Zach. I'm blushing here. I don't know if, if the video picks it up. <laughs> that was overly generous, especially. <laughs> I am to please. I am to please. Charles, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. To be fair, I did say he wasn't airborne, airborne rat. 
were quite fabulous. <laughs> I, I apologise, I've misquoted you. Mm. Beatrice, how are you? It's good to see you again. I'm totally flattered and honoured to, to be invited here again on the Napoleonicist. And uh, I, I do think that you're, you're, you're doing yourself not a great favour because we're all in awe of you and your social media skills and everything. So very happy to be here. See, I have a knack of being able to be very vocal with a very small amount of knowledge. So it, it's all kind of a smoke and mirrors uh, scenario <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, let's get down to business because there is a very obvious starting point for this discussion, isn't there? Klaus Fitz. War is a continuation of foreign policy by other means. Also, we're led to believe. Anyway, there is sort of a separate discussion to be had about the precise translation. Should it actually be by other means rather than with other means? Because the word used is mit, which folks who are familiar with German will know is with rather than by. But either way, the fundamental point still stands, right? War is a continuation of foreign policy. So I will make my first question a very simple one. Is Klaus Fitz right? But then perhaps more interestingly, at what point do you think war stops becoming foreign policy and starts fundamentally becoming war? Beatrice, do you want to start us off? Yes, this, this is really a fascinating uh, discussion and it has been waged before, hasn't it? I mean, when uh, David Bell brought out his seminal work, The First Total War in 2007, he argued that uh, with Clausewitz that the total war meant that uh, war and foreign policy and domestic policy became blurred, that the revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, they presented this new notion of total mobilization of society. They blurred the boundaries between combatants and non-combatants, between the domestic and the foreign. And I really liked his argument, although there was some criticism, for example, Jeremy Black, who said, well, all modern warfare wasn't total and uh, uh, ancient modern warfare was sometimes total as well. So there is a discussion here, although I do side more with David Bell, but I'm, I'm interested to hear how uh, Charles and Alex see Bell's argument. Um, Alex, uh, sorry, sorry, Charles, go for it. Well, I mean, as far as David Bell is concerned, I wrote a very critical review of his book, which he did not like at all, and, and um, produced a very combative answer in history online or something I can't remember what age France review or something anyway and and produced a very combative answer which I refused to engage with um I found the book very selective in its arguments um he, what, what, what examples does he come up with he comes up with the Bombay he comes up with the peninsula war um those are fairly anomalous situations, and the Peninsula War is a lot more complicated than he makes out anyway. Um, that said, that said, whilst I believe that the phrase was um, war is a continuation of foreign policy with an admixture of other means, mm -hmm. um, yes, I do take his point. Of, of course, you can you can say that, that as soon as you get total war, you have a situation in which foreign policy, international relations, war making, domestic policy, all become combined into a single whole. The only thing that I would argue is that I don't really think this happens in the Napoleonic period. 
why not Charles before we move over to Alex why would you suggest that well um let's take let's take France I mean, France is the archetypal nation in arms um you know it's it's France which gives us the idea um let's look at the French nation in arms um very quickly under Napoleon you don't see a nation in arms you see a continent in arms you see you see every possible measure being taken to ensure that France is not fighting a total war Napoleon doesn't fight a total war and when he's finally forced to in 1814 because he's been kicked out of the rest of Europe the French won't back him. So, so I, I do have some, some difficulty with the notion. I think, I think that what you get is the concept. Certainly you can argue that France in 1793-94 is either fighting a total war or at the very least on the road to fighting a total war. You can say that Spain in 1808 was aspiring to fight a total war, but actually failing miserably. Um, I mean, the Spanish war effort is, for all the reasons I've laid out in my books, you know, shambolic. Um, no, no, no fault of the Spaniards. But I think the idea is there. But does it come together in the way it comes together in the First World War, or for that, or that matter, the American Civil War? No, it doesn't. And Alex, I noticed that you're nodding through much of what Charles has said there. Would you agree with that? Yes. Um, um, I think there is a, a distinction, I think, to be made between the rhetoric of the total war, which you see, especially during the revolutionary period, um, up to the start of Napoleonic Wars. There is a lot of rhetoric about fighting the, the totality of the war. And then the reality, as Charles pointed out, because the reality is that Napoleonic wars, especially in the later halves, were not total wars. Um, in fact, deliberately so. Um, if nothing else, uh, Charles already mentioned that in 1814, when Napoleon was indeed confronted with a choice of waging that total war uh, during the invasion of France, he chose not to. And same applies during the Russian invasion in 1812. Both sides deliberately avoided fighting what we now would imagine as a total war. Napoleon, by not issuing the proclamation emancipation of Serbs, deliberately so, and the, on the Russian side, uh, there were all efforts made not to, not to actually encourage necessarily the, the peasant uprisings. In fact, I'm just finishing a new biography of Kutuzov, and you see there that Kutuzov uses the Russian military force to actually beat down the peasant unrest while he's fighting a war against uh, Napoleon. Uh, now he selectively encourages bands to fight uh, uh, Napoleon, but it's not part of this total war kind of effort. So I, I think um, I, I side more with, with Charles on this issue that uh, the concept indeed comes forward during the Revolutionary War. It's an important moment in that sense. The, you know, the decree of Levy en masse creates that vision of a nation at war and, and mobilized for it. But then 
it dissipates uh, for a while, and it will be only much later that we truly will see uh, that you know the the total war, uh, the way we envision it. Especially, and in, in, uh, you know, having read both Charles's review of, of Bell's work and, and Jeremy Black's, um, you can see the antidescent to this in previous eras, right? What is the total war? As, as Beatrice mentioned, it's it's a fuzzy concept in that sense. How do you define the totality? Because one nation might be fighting what it perceives as a total war, but for the other nation, it can be actually a limited uh, a military effort. Yes, if if I may jump into there, I, I really I really am fascinated by this discussion because um, it depends so much on where you look and from which perspective you are assessing this. Because if you look at the German source, uh, sources of the German lands that were occupied and that the German peasants that were suffering, the citizens that were suffering in the sieges of the latest battles during Napoleonic War, or for my part, uh, the Netherlands who were incorporated in France between 1810 and 1813, as soon as Napoleon issued that decree, he hauled all the ministers and the capable persons uh, of the Netherlands to France and instructed them to transform the whole infrastructure of the country, the taxes, um, uh, uh, the economy, everything, in order to prepare for more war and to uh, mobilize more recruits. So it's not just mass, mass conscription, it's also mass enforcement, and it's also overturning of all the resources in the country for the war machinery. So in specific areas and places, it, it really played out as a total war in the sense that the whole infrastructure of a country society was transformed in the direction of waging war. And there's another aspect which I did very much like in Bell's book. It's the way uh, the war imprinted itself in the hearts and minds of the populaces. And um, I listened to the talk, Zach, you were there as well, I, I think, of death men talking about the Waterloo veterans and how they described uh, how war um, sort of yeah, trickles, not even trickled, um, uh, um, immersed the whole society in, in the imagery, in the metaphors, and also traumatized so many people. Uh, there were so many invalids, so many veterans after that. And also if you read the literature, the poems, the pamphlets in Germany, in, in the Dutch or the Belgium lands, it's all about the fear for a new war. So in that sense, it was more total. It affected more citizens, peasants uh, in, in far remote corners of their countries than it did before. Of course, it's all gradual, of course. It's, uh, and I can see if you compare it to 1918 or 1945, the age of industrialized warfare, it's different altogether. But the notion that there's um, no, no distinction between combatants and non-combatants, uh, uh, this, this infrastructure part of it and the trauma, I think, is important to stress. I mean, as somebody who has very much worked on the Peninsula War in particular, um, from, beneath, from beneath, I mean, the, the latter half of, of my work on it has been very, very much about the popular experience of war, um, about popular mobilization, about popular responses to war. Um, and indeed about the horrors of war. Um, I hear everything that, 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 that you say, Beatrice. The Napoleonic Wars was a pretty immersive experience. Uh, depending where you were, of course. I mean, if, 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 you, if you were on some family farm down in the Dordogne, I mean, it, it was obviously very different from if you're on a family farm somewhere in, in, in Poland. 
obviously things things were different where you where you work. That I don't think that the mere fact that war was becoming more all-embracing makes it a total war. I I think that that I would still stick with my concept was there, but not the reality. And and the trouble is, I would also go back from where you are, in in that if you take um, let us say the wars of, of the Spanish succession a century before, um, or let, let alone the Thirty Years' War, um, those wars were just as immersive, just as devastating. And, and if you look at the numbers of troops who Louis XIV mobilised, you, you, you know, in terms of the proportion of the French population, you're not far short of what Napoleon did. Um, Equally, if you take another episode in which my, my more or less illustrious ancestors were, were, were mixed up in, if you take the 45, um, yes, I mean, I, I am descended from a, from a Highlander who fought against Bonnie Prince Charlie. But you can, you can draw a direct comparison between the horrors of the Bombay and the horrors that happened to the Highlands in 1746. It, I think that there is a a, a greater continuum here than people imagine. And I do worry about this tendency to say, the French Revolution and Napoleon changes everything. It's a so step is, on the road. So is what we're looking at here a greater availability of material that enables us to gain an insight into the experiences of the ordinary person? Or are we looking at a, a technological shift which allows a better distribution of information that therefore in turn gives us more insight, but also means that the public is better informed and therefore is more completely immersed? Or is there something else entirely? You know, I'm, I'm, I, was, I, was, um, I wanted to make a point about the 30 years war, uh, which, which Charles alluded uh, to, because anyone who would have, uh, you know, lived through that experience would have certainly talked about the totality of the war, the sack of Magdeburg, let's say, right, the, the indiscriminate nature of the war. But how many accounts do we have from coming from the war from an average soldier, from an average uh, citizen? I think that's one of the sides of the, of the, of, of, of the wars that the Napoleonic War pr produced a profusion really, I mean, a, a plethora of accounts on, on all sides that allows us for a much better reconstruction of the early modern uh, conflict than uh, probably any other period. And that's related to the urbanization, the expansion of literacy, uh, the, the ability to really to produce this memoir literature, which shapes so much of what we know. But the related side to it is the one that I think, Zach, you um, alluded to, and that is the um, expansion and transformation of what state is about. Um, so in, in my own research, I highlight the, uh, the you know, one of the, uh, you know, accomplishments. And again, I'm not pronouncing whether it's a good or bad. I usually ask students how to write essays to, to assess whether it is a positive or negative effect is the expansion of state under Napoleonic rule. Right, the, uh, uh, efficient, the expansion of efficiency of, of both control, surveillance, extraction of resources, mobilization. We've talked about the conscription. We've talked about the tax, uh, the, uh, tax system that Napoleon certainly reformed uh, and, and ex exported. All that is part of the war. 
However, we, again, uh, the, the, when we talk about the, the, the nature of the war, I don't think it, it, it approaches the totality of it. Having said, the original question was about war as a continuation of foreign policy. And if, we, if I may track back myself to, to that question, I do believe that the war is indeed the continuation of foreign policy um, through other means or by other means, however we want to put it. But the quick question, right, the key question is at what point, as you pointed out, Zach, does it be start, simply starts becoming a war? And you see that during the Napoleonic Wars at many points when Napoleon or his opponents don't necessarily have a clear-cut policy that the war supports. Um, the, and, and that's a problem that, that, that sustains the Napoleonic Wars uh, as a period during which we have only few breaks in between and uh, a, a decade full of violence. I want to bring Beatrice, I'll come to you in a moment, Charles, but I want to bring Beatrice in because she's been keen to, to say something all the way through that. Beatrice, take it away. Yes, I wanted to respond to the two points made about the either or not the continuation or the discontinuation of the Napoleonic Times and then also about this uh, uh, continuation um, of war as foreign policy. I, I think for me still one of the most important keywords is also making sense of foreign politics and policies is trauma and is the terror uh, that the war inflicted, not just in the societies and the populaces, but also in the statesmen themselves. And uh, there is lots of work being done on uh, the Napoleonic Wars, the Revolution Napoleonic Wars, as also a turning point in how people articulated and disseminated uh, their emotions. The emotional turn in history, but also before that, Lynn Hunt, American historian, who wrote about how empathy was disseminated in epistolary novels, in poems, in texts, because there was one aspect uh, on the Napoleonic Wars that it tied together so many continents and so many peoples. So novels were being uh, written about that already in the Enlightenment, of course, but then also in the war times that were spread across Europe. Sir Walter Scott, for example, Austin, who also directly or indirectly thematized the wars in the Netherlands. There were also a couple of novels that came out in Germany. The Liberation, the Wars of Liberation, of course, sparked off a whole new uh, era of, of uh, um, uh, romantic thought and writings. So in that sense, the war was total and that it inspired throughout society and well was the war in itself total or was the experience different and was it more was there more extensive writing about it probably also the latter to a great extent and if you also uh, can see what for example Castaway or Wellington uh, or the Dutch uh, um, envoys what they read and uh, I have a PhD who's now trying to piece together what those statesmen took with them in their um, suitcases to Vienna, for example, to Paris, what they were reading. They were reading the novels of Walter Scott, for example, uh, novels of Byron. Uh, uh, in the Netherlands, lots of novels as well, thematizing the horrors of war and communicating with each other about that. And if you read their letters and read their negotiations in Vienna and Paris, you can also see that they refer to these traumas, to these horrors. Never, kind of a never again experience was also there at the Green Bay stables in the slots. It was not just national interest, it was also deep felt transnational emotions. And this is something that ties this, this, this war aspect of trauma and experience together with the new foreign policy that came out of that. 
I know Charles wanted to say something and Alex wants to, so I'll, I'll allow you both to respond before we then move on. Charles, first. Um, well, the point, I, just, just briefly, a point about um, um, war and foreign policy. Um, in the, the brief break you have in the conflict between Britain and France in 1802 to 1803, um, war, uh, Napoleon simply con continues war by means of foreign policy. You know, he, he doesn't let up in his hostility. Um, equally, you can say the same thing about um, periods of peace between France and Austria, between France and Russia. You know, Napoleon goes on being Napoleon, and that's why those powers are forced back to war with him. The point I wanted to make about the, the written word is, comes directly from my experience of, of, of Spain and um, the, the historiography of the Peninsula War. When I began my work um, back in, what, 1980 or whatever it was, um, virtually the only serious study that one had, other than narrow military studies, of the Peninsula War was Gabriel Lovett's book, Napoleon and the Birth of Modern Spain. And I read that and I reread that and I have read it God knows how many times since. And it's a very important book. But he, I, I think he makes a fundamental error in that he goes to the extensive Spanish press sources. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of newspapers coming out all over Spain every day. There's an explosion of the press. There, there are hundreds of pamphlets, broadsides, manifestos, apologia, being issued all over the place all the time. Um, there's a collection in Madrid, the Colección Continental of Friday, which is something like 1,150 volumes of this stuff. Now, if you read a lot of that material, particularly the material coming out in 1808 um, at the start of the war, you have a picture of total war. You have absolute hatred of Napoleon, absolute hatred of the French, absolute determination to wage war. You have claims that every single Spaniard is rushing out to go and fight Boney. That is wishful thinking. It's an imagined war. And it's a war which simply doesn't happen. And you go, because you go into the archives and you find it's all hogwash. Partly, it's hogwash designed to, by, by the elites to persuade the people that the people are fighting. And because that, that, that will deal, if, you, you know, if you've got problems in, I don't know, La Coruña or somewhere, if you've got conscription riots there, if you can persuade everybody in, in La Coruña that everybody else is fighting, then, then you might just get things to settle down. So part is a contract, and partly it's just wishful thinking. And, and the, the net result is you end up with Lovett's perfectly well-researched, well-thought-out portrayal of the Peninsula War, which is drawn from one set of sources. And 
I fear my unworthy efforts, which were drawn from a rather different set of sources, which for the most part have never been touched. And, and I'm afraid to say that the, the, the result is that I am extremely skeptical of attempts to use the literature, the press, as a means of, 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 if you like, telling us how the wars were like. But what they give us is how the wars were portrayed. Yes, but isn't that exact? Isn't that exactly the point? I, I, I really, uh, from a more constructivist point of view, if people consider the situations as real, they're real in the consequences and the way the Thomas theory. So, if that was the, the the way reality was portrayed or conveyed, it's it's what Napoleon did in his bulletins for the Grand Armée, trying to shape reality. It was strategic communication, as you say. But uh, I'm also referring to the letters, so not just the press, letters written home. It's, by the way, Matilda Greig, a dead man telling tales, uh, the literature written, the, the, the memoirs written by uh, Waterloo veterans uh, from, from all over the place, makes for massive, impressive reading, uh, which counted for the way the wars were imagined and fed into the policies of the time. So whether they portrayed the war in its exact military minute details, of course, I don't know, perhaps not. But on the other hand, they, those, those, in those letters, they did not always have reason to blow up things or, or, or obfuscate things. And it's very much a kind of a wave <coughs> of ideas, of notions, of poems that informed a new public consciousness after the war. If you're talking about public consciousness after the war, that's a slightly different issue. Um, I, mean, I do I do accept that that in the wake of the wars you do get the creation of well in, in Spain um, the, the, the great national myth um, that that is drawn you know, precisely from the sort of writings I've been I've been talking about um, and and in terms of the letters written by by soldiers and Alan Forrest and um, Oh, who's the chap in Belgium who's, who's written about the, the, the letters from the soldiers who, who came from the area around Liege? Um, they'll come back to me. Um, anyway, I mean, I, I mean I'm, I, I'm aware of the books written by people like Alan Forrest looking at French soldiers' letters. And for the most part, what you get is a... A very worm's eye view. Um, my memory, sometimes as I read the things, but, but you know, these are letters which are not couched in ideological terms. They're, 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 they're about, hey, mum, I got a bit of sausage today. Charles, you were referring to uh, Bernard Wilkins's. Uh, that's it. That's book. it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Fighting for Napoleon. Yeah. Uh, they, they are very interesting. Yeah. They are a very interesting volume. Um, um, uh, Char uh, Zach, uh, as a warning, this discussion will not end. <laughs> yeah, I'm clearly, quite conscious yeah. of that. <laughs> uh, but I gotta, I gotta, I gotta ruffle some feathers here, Charles. <laughs> Is Napoleon the only one though? Because. Um, you know, when you say that Napoleon was waging war through other means, even in peacetime, I think they all do. That's um, so. I don't. I don't know if we can really blame Napoleon for exploiting it. 
Because the Russians are equally eager to do so, right? And in our podcast with our good friend Alex Stevenson, I got to plug it in here. <laughs> Smoothly done. Like well done. I, um, Charles and I, we've talked about how much attention is placed on France and how much we oftentimes ignore events in Poland, where we see exact same thing here, exploitation of a moment to pursue um, foreign policy by other means. Uh, later on, uh, when Napoleon, when all of Europe is focused on Napoleon's conquest, we see Russian expansion of the Nubian principalities. And when the French confronted uh, the Russian foreign minister and um, told them to stop expanding into the Nubian principalities, the foreign minister famously responds, and I quote, the Ottoman Empire is already dead, so why shouldn't Russia enjoy the spoils of it? So you see this kind of opportunistic moment. And I see that I think in, in all of these key moments where the war is perceived as part of the foreign policy, and if opportunity is given, you have to grasp it. You have yeah. to grab it. Which I'm, I'm, leads in very nicely to thank you, Alex, because you've actually formed the bridge to where I wanted to take this next, which was to look at kind of the mechanics behind foreign policy. See, there is a plan behind this, folks. And Alex, being a pro, he's worked it out and, and solved all the problems for me. Looking at the mechanics of the way in which foreign policy is conducted during this period because as you say you can throw a lot of accusations with a heck of a lot of justification at different individuals certainly in regards to underhand dealings i'm thinking of metternich bias regret is often leveled at britain in relation to the peace of amiens you've got planes stabbing your ally in the back looking at you napoleon in relation to spain in 1808 so it's worth kind of looking at those practicalities of how it works because i suspect in the process we'll shed a little light on all of those points. So kind of what is the process here? And, you know, let's kind of think about war and peace kind of seeming to be going on fairly constantly between one nation and another during this period. Charles, do you want to start on that? Because you, you were keen to respond to Alex as it was. Yeah, I mean, what I was going to say to Alex was that um, it's essentially a point I've been making on, on Facebook these, 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 past, these past couple of days. Um, yes, of course, all powers had their own interests, some of them long-term interests, some of them short-term interests, which arose because conditions had changed. All of them, Britain, Prussia, Russia, Austria, France, all of them they do not lose sight of those national interests. The question is whether they pursue them to such an extent that the practical, the practical constraints, which had been recognized by most statesmen in the 18th century, most monarchs in the 18th century, were thrown aside. And the, the, the also the extent to which those national interests were placed before, well, in, 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 in the case of France's opponents, before fighting the French Revolution and, and or Napoleon. Um, so, so all powers are imperialistic. All, all powers 
believe in dynastic foreign policy or its equivalents. Across the board, of course they do. But I think the difference with Napoleon is that he does not recognize the constraints which most other statesmen recognized. And let most me. Other, and what I'll say is most other statesmen recognized that was that international relations was a game that you played with the other powers. A game in which everybody had stakes, everybody had interests. And in which nobody could absolutely go for broke. You had to recognize the interests of the other powers. And, it's, and, and I always said to my students, it's exactly the same in a friendship. Friendship is about give and take. Detente is about give and take. Napoleon was incapable of that, and that's why it all goes wrong. And it is that which makes him so different, I think, from, from, the, from the other statesmen of Europe. Let me bring Alex straight in on in response to that. I'm not pushing Beatrice to the side here, uh, but I'm very conscious that you've got three people in the room who are not particularly keen on Napoleon when it comes to foreign policy. Um, Alex, I'm not suggesting that you're necessarily going to disagree with Charles, but I'm interested in your take. Oh, I will, I, know... I will. No, no, no. <laughs> because again, <laughs> if we all agree on something, that's going to be a rather lame debate here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a chamber or echo in chamber here. No, no, I want to take it uh, again. I will disagree with Charles to a point that Napoleon does take the other powers interest into account. For example, Tilsit is a good example of it. Tilsit is a, is, is a treaty in which Napoleon compromises with, with Russia to a, a, a significant extent. So how can you ignore that? But Alex, Alex, I don't ignore it. Yes, of course he comes to an agreement with, 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 with your namesake, but he can't live by it. He doesn't respect it. He doesn't, he doesn't behave as if Alexander is his friend. Within, within two and a half years, he's completely alienated the guy with whom he could have won the war. France and, France but... and Russia are pretty unbeatable. And, and same same accusations can be thrown at, at Alexander. See, that's the thing is that how, uh, how unique is Napoleon's position? I see Napoleon's position unique in that he's, he's a capable guy. He's very capable guy. And the contemporaries grudgingly respect him, right? In that sense that he, his ability and talent to, to bring about success. Now with that success, and I agree with you, Charles, comes significant ambition and ego, but, we also see that on the other side, there are no less egos involved, no less ambitions involved. When Alex, for example, my namesake, the Russian emperor, is told about the, um, uh, an armistice that is negotiated by his commander with the Turks, uh, uh, which was the preliminary for a possible peace with the Ottoman Empire, he shuts it down right away because, and I quote, that is unworthy of Russia's honor. That's something Napoleon could have easily said, unworthy of France's honor, and depended to fight the Turks, continue to fight the Turks after 1807, because he needed, or he wanted 
to push the boundaries to the Danube River and force the Turks to go up is Arabia, Moldavia, Wallachia. Ultimately, it's Napoleon's invasion of Russia that forces Alex to back down and get only Bessarabia. But if he had a chance, he would have done exactly the same thing that Napoleon was doing to the other powers. So I don't see Napoleon necessarily different in his pursuit of foreign policy. He just has more resources, maybe more talent. Although ultimately he overplays his hand. After 1812, he clearly could have compromised, could have made a deal, and he didn't. That's a separate story, I think. And, and I think the Russian invasion is a game changer. <laughs> I'm sorry, Beatrice, uh, to, to keep you waiting. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no problem at all. I'm, I'm, I'd love to listen and think hard because I do disagree with you. And um, <laughs> I'm trying to- Which one? <laughs> exactly. Now you have to be quiet and let me make my argument because that's difficult enough to stand up to you as it is. Um, well, the point is not that Napoleon did things so completely different from the other leaders. I agree with you there. But the point is, what was his vision? What was his vision of the international relations system of Europe uh, as it was back then? And there, I think he really tried to revolutionize the notion, the idea of the international relations system. For the other leaders, you could argue that they still vied for a position within this old system of Europe, where predominantly, I would say, the Habsburg Empire, the Translatio Imperi, was one of the main empires, the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor. He was the one who was the Catagon. He would uh, still, there was still this notion that he would do away, uh, it was the eschatological presence on earth. Well, these were old fashioned notions and they were becoming obsolete, but they were still there. And you could argue that 1804, 1805, 86 were turning points in the way Napoleon shaped the vision, the image, the future perhaps even of international relations system. First of all, he crowned himself emperor, which really was a novelty. And then he um, besieged the Austrians in 1805, the Prussians in 1806, he established the Confederation of the Rhine and Francis abdicated as an emperor, which was a real fundamental tectonic shift in the international relations. This is also the same time where in a, a United Kingdom, uh, Pitt and Alexander, they kind of have an exchange of letters in 1805 and they say, well, we need to think hard. Things are changing in Europe. Napoleon is reinventing the whole system and we need to think about a new balance of power, not to wage war, but to create and maintain peace afterwards, which is, is I, I really think this is one of the most seminal moments and this text of 1805, perhaps one of the most seminal plans, the pit plan, because it, it was the answer to Napoleon's revolutionizing of the international system in saying, well, we, the British and the Russians have to come up with a preponderance for Europe. We have to implement a balance of power system, not as it was in the 18th century for preparing for war, for maintaining the peace in an attempt for collective security, which was still very hierarchical. And I don't agree with Paul Schroeder, who says it's only those two powers. We can discuss that later. But it was, and, and we're not saying that they were right, but Napoleon started it, but also the British and the Russians, they were reinventing international relations, but also the eschatology, where it all had to go 
to it was all my almost transcendental how they thought about international relations which is a new and novel way of thinking about it and this is i think something where napoleon departed from his predecessors i i i, I completely agree with you in that sense i said oh that's a pity <laughs> no, I, I agree with you that Napoleon's transformation of international system is, is a fact it, because of the sheer success of it, um, 1805, 1806, 1807. And I also, I think, would agree with Charles in the sense that Napoleon had a chance in 1806 to come up with a better uh, peace with, with British. He should have exploited the opportunity when Charles Fox was reaching out. This was a moment for him, but um, I can also, you know, you can rationalize why he didn't, even though it would be a, just a lame excuse for it. What I'm, what my argument was, is that um, I cannot imagine, let's say, Austria being as successful as Napoleon in 1805, 1806, 1807, and not pursuing the same policy. That's where I, I you know, Charles has a very good point that all of these powers are opportunistic, expansionist, they're predatory. When given an opportunity, they will predate on, on, on neighboring states. Uh, when given a chance, remember that in 1805, it is Austria who invades Bavaria, right? It's a neighboring state, and we know how the relationship between Bavaria and Austria was. And we know the Austrian intentions toward Bavaria were quite predatory. So that's the point I think I'm making more than anything else, that Napoleon has plenty of flaws. There's a lot of things we can, uh, I think, criticize for. But this is not one of them, um, at least not, not entirely his fault. And this taps into a really fundamental question, doesn't it? You know, why is there, and it sounds very simple, but why is there so much war during this period? Because quite obviously it's not all about Napoleon, not least because it's not until 1799 that he is in a position as head of state to be able to dictate where France is going from a foreign policy perspective. Yes, obviously he plays a pivotal role in relation to what happens in, out in Egypt, but that, that's something that you can kind of set to one side as an aspect of French foreign policy. So there's a lot else going on here. There are seven coalitions in the space of what, 25 years, give or take. What I suspect is kind of underpinning this is also a question of trust. You know, To what extent is there a lack of trust amongst these different individuals? And to what extent does that generate a greater inclination towards war. So why is there no lasting peace? Yes, Charles, go for it. Um, I'd like to go back to, 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 to Beatrice's point um, with which I both agree, or in, in, half, in half of it I agree with, half of it I kind of disagree with. I don't think Napoleon is doing anything. Oh, well, I agree. Napoleon creates a different Europe, getting rid of the Holy Roman Empire, Yes, I agree. It's a tectonic shift. It's, it's, you know, Beatrice is entirely right. It's massively important. Napoleon creates a very different Europe from the Europe that had existed until 1789 or even afterwards. That, that's not in, dis in dispute. Was, however, Napoleon creating a new, new Europe in any modernizing sense? Yeah, I know all about you know state building reforms and all that business, but but no, let's let's think about the, the Europe he conceived. No, I don't think he was. I think I think he was he was just a throwback to a Roman emperor. Where I totally agree 
with Beatrice is, is, is the, the way in which the powers, yes, all of them predatory. Alexander is absolutely right. Gradually come, to, come and it starts off, as, as Beatrice says, with the, with the exchange of letters in 1805, the, the powers gradually come to realize that they, it can no longer be a question of dog eat dog. That, 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 they, that a, a situation has arisen, and this is where I'll come back to, to your question, Zach. A situation has arisen which is simply unsustainable. And, and Vienna settlement and the Congress system which follows is all about ensuring order and harmony in international relations. It's all about uh, avoiding war. And that is why the many, many people who struck their stuff on Twitter condemning the, the Vienna settlement, that is why they are so completely wrong. The Vienna settlement is not regressive. It's not about turning the clock back here, here. Thank you, Charles. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's about creating a new Europe and it, and it is really something which one can only applaud. Now, to go, to go, I mean, I'm not saying it works. I'm not saying it didn't have its, its, its faults. I'm not saying that it was possibly even likely to work, but at least they tried. Now, going back to Zach's question about, about why is there so much war? Well, there'd always been war in Europe all through the 18th century. I don't, not entirely certain there's that much more war than there had in, in, in that more war in 17, sorry, in 1810 than there had been in 1710, um, or any other comparison you can come up with. What I think is the case is that even happy thought had Napoleon got his head shot off at Lodi or somewhere like that, I think that, the, 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 and, and indeed, even had the French Revolution not happened, I think that Europe was heading for a major, major crash in terms of international relations in the 1790s and early 1800s. Revolves around the, 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 the disappearance of Poland as a, as a buffer in Eastern Europe. But I think something very, very nasty was always on the cards. It just so happens that it, that it happened in the context of Napoleon, sorry, of, of the French Revolution, and by extension, Napoleon. I'm sorry, that's, that's far too much for me. I will now shut up. Can, but can I, I want to, can, sorry, yeah, Beatrice, go for it. Yeah. Very briefly, ask uh, Alex and Charles something. How do you see, uh, this discussion between Metternich and Napoleon exactly on this aspect uh, on, on do you like more war or not in November 1830 during the Frankfurt Proposals. And Metternich said, uh, I was appalled that Napoleon took into account so many more human lives and I didn't want that anymore, but he did, sort of rephrasing the argument. So what do you think? Was Napoleon bent, hell-bent, on creating more battles and uh, raising more armies that was finally a master and conqueror of the whole of Europe? Do you believe Metternich, or was it all a ploy? I mean, this was a moment where more bloodshed could have been prevented. I believe 
the sparks will fly now, you know, it just will. I, I, right, okay. First of all, I, I do not necessarily believe anything that Metternich says. Simply because <laughs> Metternich says something doesn't mean to say it's correct. True. That, that said, that said, whether he said it or not, I believe that Napoleon was inseparably wedded, indissolubly wedded to the notion of glory, to the notion of war. It was, it was absolutely fundamental to him. It was what he was. Um, and, you know, he, he talked about, you know, the moment, the moment I cease to be, to, to be feared, I'm nothing. I'm, that's just a piece of self-justification because actually the, the powers of Europe would be perfectly happy to live with him for the most part. Napoleon needed war. It's what he was. And, and so even if, even if Metternich, Metternich invented it, it was a very, very plausible thing to have invented. Because yes, I do believe, I do believe that Napoleon just as he had done in 1807. Um, in 1813, Napoleon had a chance for a compromise peace. I genuinely believe that. I mean, I mean, how can how, how can I prove it? But but I, I honestly believe that that was the case. And he threw it away. And he threw it away because taking it would have meant that he was less than Napoleon. Charles, let me just come back because um, I want to bring Alex in, but before I do, just come back to you um, with the, the common um, claim that I see being made by those who say, oh, well, Napoleon couldn't possibly have accepted the peace proposals in 1813. You covered the question of whether or not they were made in good faith, um, to which you argued, you know, yes, they were. There was a potential for a compromise peace. Talk is often um, made of the coronation oath and how it wasn't possible to accept the proposals because that would have countered the oath that Napoleon had taken at the point of coronation. What's your response to that? Because I'm, I'm sure you've got some, some pithy uh, remarks to make in, in that sense. I can even do it in French. La santé, c'est un bagatelle. Uh, uh, apologies, the, but I'm not a linguist. The, so the, for... the, oath, the oath, a mere form of words, and nothing. He broke his word all the time. He would not have a problem with breaking his oath. Sorry, but there it is. Now, in terms of practical problems, what would have happened had he come back from, um, from where was the meeting with, with Metternich Dresden? Had he come back from, from Dresden with a compromised piece, and this is what he could have got, which would have left France in control of the Low Countries, Holland and Belgium, which would have left France in control of Northern Italy, because Metternich was happy to give him that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Britain wouldn't have been happy, but Britain could not have fought on, on her own. Britain always needs continental allies. What would have happened in France? There'd have been bonfires on every single corner. The people would have been in the streets cheering. There would have been absolute, absolute joy. The people of France were sick of war. They were desperate for it to end. And had Napoleon somehow brought it to an end, his popularity would have soared. In other words, the whole point is rubbish. Um, Pure and simple. <laughs> I, I think you've uh, sent them off with a flea in their ear there, Charles. Um, but Alex, let me let me bring you in. I could uh, argue, again, I could have come up with a better <laughs> rationale than that, Zach. <laughs> there are ways to, you can respond, or at least rationalise why Napoleon didn't accept the offer in the summer of, uh, or even the fall of, you know, late fall of 1813. And the constitutional oath will be the, the, the worst of them all, because if we look at the oath itself, uh, if I've memory serves me right, uh, he swore to maintain the integrity of the, quote, the integrity of the territory of the Republic. Uh, that is all, you know, how do you define that? What is, you know, Republic is already gone and what is the territory of the Republic? Because in 1805, that's a very different territory than it is in 1813. And not to mention that the territories in question are not necessarily the territories of the Republic, but rather the territories of other states that France um, um, uh, co conquered. And most importantly, at the end of the oath, the oath did ask him to govern uh, in the sole interest of happiness and glory of the French people. And as Charles pointed out, peace would have brought a lot of happiness <laughs> to the French people. Um, so uh, I usually, uh, I'm usually am, am willing to cut some slack to Napoleon and put him in the wider context. I think 1813 is an exception for me because he indeed had an opportunity to negotiate and find and, and, and come up with the a, a, a solution to the war that would have allowed him to stay in power. No, you know, he, despite all his rhetoric that he had with Metternich, that you know, the, the war is what he needed in order to survive. Um, he didn't need to be, uh, you know, that warmongering, uh, 1813, um, uh, you know, period kind of uh, uh, a man to survive this uh, downfall. Uh, you know, to, to, to survive the setback in Russia and stay in power. The empire, if he had made a deal in eighteen in, in the fall of eighteen thirteen, would have outlived, um, would have out, you know, would have lived longer than than it did. Bravo, Alex! I knew you weren't all bad. 
<laughs> this is turning out to be oddly harmonious, isn't it? Um, let's move the discussion on to somewhere where you might disagree, because, hey, we brought you all together so that the sparks will fly. Um, that's what people are tuning in for, surely. Um, in all seriousness, though, putting my facetious response aside, I do want to take this to a, a, in a direction when we discuss the domestic side of things, because it's important, I think, to consider political systems, amongst other things. It's sometimes said, and Charles has sort of alluded to this already, that Napoleon won the battle for history, and there are multiple ways of looking at that. One is the endurance of that hugely frustrating, Napoleon was a man without flaws and everything he did was an excusable thing line of thinking, which does my head in. Um, another is the fact that Napoleon sells, right? I mean, look at the number of books that can get written about this guy writing on his vanquishers really doesn't sell in the same way. I mean, look at the gift shop at Waterloo. Charles, you've made this point in your own writing. You would think that Napoleon won. You, would, you wouldn't even know that there was a Wellington or a Blucher involved in all of this if you walked do, do you know the gift most shop. Awful, do you know the most awful thing about the battlefield of Waterloo? I do. It's that statue of Napoleon that stands on the Allied Bridge. Actually, no, sorry, correction. The worst thing about the Waterloo battlefield is the Victor Hugo monument, and do not get me started on that. But the second worst thing is that statue of Napoleon, as far as I'm no, concerned. But, um, but the, the worst thing of all is that you can see the bloody thing from space. If you look at if you if you look at the Google images uh, image of Mont Saint Jean, it's taken on a sunny day, and you can actually see the shadow of Napoleon, they're projected on the ground. I'm happy to hear that, I dig that. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is unspeakable. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we are stuck with the Napoleonic legends. I will fight it all my life. I will go down fighting, but I will never win. This is true. Another element of, of this, of course, is you know, the, the politics of Napoleonic France. You know, Napoleon has that reputation as, as a reformer, as an administrator and the Democrat. People know that I have huge issues with the latter, especially. What, therefore, would you say were the norms in terms of domestic policy during this period? And I'm kind of deliberately leaving that as a broad question so that you can take it where you like. And then how unique was Napoleonic France in comparison? Because we talk about autocracy, right? And folks like me will turn around and say, well, look, let's not forget Napoleon was a dictator. Now, the counter argument would always be, well, yeah, but, you know, the autocratic systems across Europe were, were you know, no, no great thing either. Fine. But let me get your thoughts on, on all of those kinds of arguments. Um, Beatrice, do you want to start us off on this? Yes, yeah, this is, again, a very fascinating question. Uh, I did a small uh, poll on Twitter with a colleague of mine, Lotte Jensen, who is a very famous historian in the Netherlands working on the images and the whole culture after Napoleon, how Napoleon was being mediatized in the Netherlands. And we thought that the outcome would be pretty negative, uh, as it was in Britain. And it was a similar poll in Britain saying, I think, 70% of horde of Napoleon. But in the Netherlands, to our great astonishment, it was the other way around. 70 or even more percent thought that Napoleon had been good for the Netherlands, which totally shocked me. And people were pointing, uh, as was with his uh, commemoration only a couple of weeks ago, people were pointing to all his... Um, 
successes, uh, but also all these reforms on the domestic front, for example, um, the names, the addresses, the uh, addresses, um, uh, people were even naming conscription as an asset, the Napoleonic Code, of course, um, the fact that these old medieval powers of the guilds were abolished, freedom of profession was brought about. So yes, uh, there were quite a lot of reforms that Napoleon implemented and forced or less in the Netherlands, but what they did not uh, mention was as I said, during those last years, you were mentioning before, Charles, that the wars weren't that bad given compared to other wars, but in the Netherlands and also in Germany, demographics um, uh, decreased. So it meant that there was a mortality surplus in the Netherlands and in the German lands, which didn't happen, hadn't happened after the medieval times. Oh, no, really... oh, so, sorry, uh, Beatrice, you misunderstand, misunderstood me. No, I, 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 I am very, very well aware of the horrendous effects of, okay, of, sorry, of, then, uh, of the Napoleonic Wars on, on, on the Netherlands, on Germany. What, uh, I, what, I, what, I, what I actually said was that if you take Europe as a whole, I'm not entirely certain that war was any worse in 1810 than it was in 1710. In other words, there were, there were plenty, plenty of people, well, in France, for example, which suffered atrociously in 1709, 1710, 1711. All, all I'm saying is that, that you have the same sort of experiences as you had in Napoleonic Europe. Yes. In, in, in the Europe of uh, Louis XIV. Okay, I understand. But the, the point I was, I was trying to make now, and so that aligns with, with your point, Charles, um, the point is that uh, in 1815, the Netherlands were worse off in terms of human lives, in terms of authoritarian control, uh, the gendarmerie in the Netherlands was established. Uh, there was military police, not just in the Netherlands, also in other countries surrounding France and in France and in Italy, for example. Uh, there were secret intelligence agencies. This was not something that Napoleon did, of course. The Prussians and the Austrians also worked with that, but he gave it a true boost and people learned from how Fouché policed um, uh, society, l'esprit public. This was the concept that Napoleon introduced to monitor and to surveil uh, public, um, uh, public perception of the rulers. So there was a lot going on on the domestic front that was truly revolutionary, but in a sense that it supported the unitary repressive nation state rather than that reinforced the, the whole notion of human rights. And well, we, you had this discussion before, Zach, on your, your podcast, but Napoleon also reinstated slavery and uh, he was not a great fan, to say the least, about women's rights. Um, so I think that on, on, on the whole, this, this poll that we did in the Netherlands was completely wrong. People have a complete diff wrong, I would say, um, uh, impression of what Napoleon brought. Yeah, I, 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 I can, I totally hear everything that you say. Um, you know, I, I, as, as we were talking about earlier, I'm very involved on, in Napoleonic Twitter. And this is absolutely extraordinary, the number of people who, who seem, seem to think that they can simply pronounce upon Napoleon in his rule. And when, when you sort of probe them a little bit, oh, I've never read that. I've never read that. I've never read a biography of Napoleon. And you just think, wow. So of course there's a lot of ignorance out there. And, and yes, yeah, I truly do believe, uh, Beatrice, that the Napoleonic legacy was 
fundamentally negative for all the sorts of reasons that, that, that you come up with. I'm a Spanish historian, really. You're never, ever going to get me to agree that, that the tendencies that produced the Guardia Civil, with all the dreadful things that that institution has done uh, up until the current era, you're never going to get me to agree that that was a positive development. And yet it was a development which is inspired by the Napoleonic Gendarmerie. Let me bring Alex in then. Wow, um, yeah, there is a lot to, to, to mull about uh, here. Um, I, I, again, to let the sparks fly, uh, Charles said um, Napoleon's legacy was fundamentally negative. I think that's how he wrote it down. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I don't share that fundamentally uh, part of it. Um, there are elements of Napoleonic reforms that were progressive. There are elements of it that are, were beneficial. Uh, tax restructuring, administrative restructuring, legal reforms, educational reforms. There are points you can make that these reforms brought benefit to, to, the, uh, to the population. What I usually, when I have this debate with my students, what I ask them is to consider whether the model of Napoleonic government administration, which was based on centralization, efficiency, uniformity, whether that would have an appeal to you as a common person, whether rural or urban, would increased taxation be of appeal to you? Would the um, a, a crucial element of the modern, you know, the, of the of this process of creating modern nation state, uh, such as conscription and professional bureau, uh, bureaucracy, would they appeal to you? Uh, Beatrice mentioned a very crucial element in, in the story, and that is increased surveillance and the, uh, policing. Would that appeal to you? Um, because there are, there are parts of me that say, hey, um, a, a, a increased a, a tax reorganization and a, a, and a more efficient tax system is not a bad thing. It certainly is part of our modern day life. And I don't think we complain much about having a, a progressive tax system. We also don't seem to complain about professionalization of, of administration and bureaucracy. If anything, we complain about the lack of it. Uh, that is part of Napoleonic legacy. Um, so I don't know. Uh, so that's why I, I don't think it's a fundamental negative thing. But, but progressive taxation, Alex, um, you know, I, I'm not I, I'm not very okay with the American tax system, but in 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 Britain we certainly have extre an extremely progressive taxation system. Um, you know, the more you earn, the more the more the more you pay, um, and that goes into the common pot. The Napoleonic tax system was anything but progressive. It imp it imposed all the burden on the common people. It, 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 it spared property. Um, it, was, it was fundamentally regressive. Um, and I mean, if you take the Napoleonic, Napoleon's educational reforms, yes, the lycée were and remain extremely good schools. They also gave France a deeply, deeply elitist political culture, which I do not believe has served her well. 
I, I think that almost everything that Napoleon did, the, 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 the prefects, centralization, was that a good thing? I'm not certain it was. Again, I'd go to the Spanish example, where, where you had a, a copy of the, Spanish, of the French system introduced, and, and it, it's, all, it's all very Napoleonic, and look at all the problems which came out of that. You know, I'm, you know, almost all of these so-called reforms um, have got a, a pretty questionable side. And, and finally, if you take the Code Napoleon, well, yes, okay, it survives in French law, and I believe in Belgian law and some other places, but it's been shorn of almost everything that Napoleon did to it. You know, it, it, it's had all the Napoleonic excrescences stripped away from it. So I, I think there are huge problems with what is, frankly, Alex, an American motion that keeps coming up over and over again, that somehow the creation of the Napoleonic, the creation of this new state, Napoleonic-style state, across Europe was a good thing. And I, I don't buy it. I really don't. Can, can I briefly tune in here, or would you like to say something first, Alex? No, no, no Beatrice, please do, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll respond to Charles after you. Yes, because I want to tie in with that argument that you're making, Charles. I think I agree with you, although I would like to state that there was a real aspect of modernization. It was a bureaucratic revolution that Napoleon imposed, and we may yeah. like it or not like it, but that was what happened. And yeah. well, today yeah. it's it's the 11th of September, 20 years ago, while we're taping it, and I cannot help uh, thinking back about how today's national security states that waged wars, that outlawed minorities, that uh, adopted alien bills, that provided blacklists. This was all going on already. Uh, of course, not with the whole technological display of force, but uh, if, if Napoleon would have had it, he would have done it. He was the one introducing optic uh, um, um, telegraph systems. He was the one who embraced modernity and technology all for identifying, assessing his enemies and also preventing enemies from rising up. So he was the one who invented counterinsurgency and it was also used against him. And then after he was besieged, of course, and I, I wrote a book about it, the Allied Council was created, which took over all of the Napoleonic uh, novelties. But you could argue that the unitary nation states, the national security states, even the term Sécurité Nationale was coined in this period against terror. Terror, of course, of the French Revolution, of the Bonapartists, but also terror, l'esprit public, the fausse nouvelle, the fake news that arose in the hearts and the minds of the people that, need, that needed to be controlled. So Napoleon was all for turning the society in a kind of a controlled entity that would support his war machinery, which is something like a military industrial complex. I know I may be overcharging it a bit here, but the I think the roots of this modern national security state system were sowed in this period. And it's not uh, a coincidence that all references to human rights, to the declaration of human rights, the, the, all the freedoms, the liberties, they were removed from the constitutions. Also after Napoleon's return, it's sometimes uh, claimed that he came back as a peace emperor. Well, I don't buy it. Thank you, Beatrice. I agree totally. I agree, I, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. If you take out the notion that somehow total war existed in the Napoleonic Wars, 
and 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 when you take that out of the equation, I could agree with everything that you're saying, and 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 really, really am uncomfortable about somehow the notion that that that, that Napoleon's legacy was positive. I find that really dark. Charles again. I take an issue with that. Uh, you're you're throwing, you know, you're making a blanket statement that. Um, I think has a can you know has quite a few holes in it. I mean, going back to taxes again, I think the way the the term progressive that I use is in, not necessarily in terms of tax rates that you pointed out, but in terms of how a tax system was structured. So reducing direct taxes, to me, which is one of the great legacies of Napoleon, at least in the French-controlled territories, was a benefit. In 1813, direct taxes only accounted for 29 percent of total receipts of the French. So that's to me is an important element because what Napoleon does is he restructures the balance of tax system in favor of indirect taxes, which he believes will raise more revenue than the direct taxes, which lay usually more heavily on taxpayers. So he taxes things like tobacco, liquor, salt, um, you know, um, and, and, and other things which do produce plenty of taxes. Now, to me, that's an important legacy. Now I don't know why would you why would you say that that's not a uh, a positive legacy to restructure it in favor of indirect and as opposed to indirect taxes because because, because um, same applies yeah. because because go ahead for a tax system to be fair and and I and I guess Alex we're talking about a difference between the American system and the British system and possibly I mean Beatrice I I have no idea about taxation in 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 in, in the Netherlands. But, but perhaps you can you can inform us. But taxation has to be, I genuinely believe, progressive and redistributive, 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 something or other. In other words, you take money from people who have got money, and you give it to people who have less money. And the way you do that is through direct taxation, because direct, direct taxation hits people with money, whereas indirect taxation hits people who have no money or have less money. And that is where I stand. Yes, as, as a taxpayer, I, I, I was on the highest rate for many years. I paid, I paid 40%. Yes. I paid 40% because that's what I should have paid. And I, and I see that as being absolutely fundamental to a decent, progressive society. And that is where I stand. Okay, and I think you've made that case strongly, Charles, but I'm conscious that Alex had other points that he wanted to make as, as counterpoints to, to your, your argument. So, Alex, let me bring you back in. You are on mute, though. And again, I don't want to monopolise the time. I mean, I know we have uh, you know, uh, other issues that I'm sure that Zach wants to discuss. But, um, you know, to go back to this issue, um, again, one of Napoleonic legacies, the one that he started in 1807 but will be done later on, will be the system of cadastre. So they kept it because it was important in legacy. They kept it because it restructured uh, a crucial element of the, of the modern, you know, that underlined the modern French state. 
So that's where, again, um, I think this this debate will continue uh, for time. So uh, you know, I'm I'm willing to uh, to just shut up and, and listen what Zach asked was. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. I, I am keen that we move things on, not least because I don't want to keep you all day. And I know that you all have other engagements. You're all um, people in demand. Um, because I do want to talk about the international dimension here. I feel that is important not to just be purely focused on Europe. Um, so what are the political ripple effects of this period across the wider world? And I'm thinking both in terms of political theory and thinking, approaches to foreign policy and, of course, in relation to colonialism, because um, we were discussing this on, on Twitter, in fact, you know, there is work on the extent to which things like the Code of Napoleon actually informed much of the codification that took place across the world, not least in South America. Jeszczek Drzeziak uh, is the chap from Poland who's writing a PhD thesis as we speak on exactly this kind of question. So in terms of those areas, political theory and thinking, foreign policy, colonialism. What is the impact of this period? Well, perhaps I could, could raise some, some, some flags if I may. Please do. I, I think the impact was, was massive. And uh, um, well, I, I wrote about this and I made the case before. Uh, you could argue that even something of a NATO or an EU kind of commission was created. It didn't live that long. And there's discussion on how um, impactful it was, but uh, it was called the Allied Council. It was created out of the sixth and the seventh coalition and it convened in Paris in July, 1815 and remained in place for a couple of years. And afterwards was transformed in a series of uh, ambassadorial conferences. And uh, some people even like to call it a European Council for the Management of the Affairs of the World. It was, of course, a British, more derogative um, um, uh, moniker. But it was true that ministers, diplomats, financial experts, police officers, bankers, they were all there. And it was a kind of an even more effectful, practical translation of the balance of power thinking into practical international politics on the ground. And uh, the council dealt with Texas, as we just discussed, it also dealt with treaties and fortif uh, fortifications with fortresses, with the, in um, the indemnities that France had to pay, but also with new treaties, the Quadruple Alliance. It even discussed uh, with France, um, invited back to the table as the uh, Cinq Court Mediatrice. It even discussed whether the European powers should intervene in America. So it was a kind of a self-proclaimed -pro Security Council, also dealing with economy. Uh, which was based on the principle of collective security. They even called it mutual security. And uh, David Todd, he wrote a seminal book in which he also described how from that moment on, driven together by the Napoleonic Wars, they were hitched to the hips for 25 years, pretty much. Well, of course, they were also fighting each other, but in the later years of the wars, they were together and they campaigned together through mud, through rain, which did something. They, they all knew each other. And then also the years thereafter, when they still lived, Alexander and Castoray, they, they, they died or committed suicide too early, but they worked together, not just in Europe, but also in fighting the Barbary pirates. Um, pirates. My PhD, Eric de Lange wrote about this. They work together, as David Todd describes, 
on the open sea. So this was not the beginning of imperial competition only, but it was also inter-imperial cooperation. Treaty of 1824 between the UK and the, and the Netherlands, for example, in Southeast Asia, it divided the spheres of influence as they had done in Europe between um, uh, the, the Dutch Indies, Indonesia, Singapore, and India, the whole area. So you could make the case that the legacy of the Napoleonic Wars for the international system was something of the invention of a kind of a mode, a model of collective security working together rather than only against each other. Of course, there were so many instances where it didn't work, where it unraveled, but they came back again. And very practically, in these uh, uh, ambassadorial conferences, there were not that many, only a handful in the years between Westphalia and System 8015. And then from that moment on, every year there was somewhere an ambassadorial conference in place, dealing with all kinds of international um, uh, aspects, which is really a transformation of the international system. I, I would agree very, very, very strongly with that. Um, and of course, I would also agree that unfortunately, this transnational system, this attempt at, at, at European-wide harmony, didn't last. And one of the reasons it didn't last was, again, one of the legacies of the Napoleonic era, which is the rise of nationalism, which, which I see, well, this is me speaking as a, as a, as a European historian who, who's had to give survey, lecture, survey courses on modern European history and so forth, the rise of nationalism is catastrophic. Because apart from anything else, where does it end? I mean, yes, you can get all Germans together. Um, okay, what about all the Poles who, 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 who live in um, areas like, like uh, Bosnia, which is in the part of Prussia, West, West Prussia, isn't it? What about all this, the, uh, the Czechs in Bohemia? And so it goes on and on. All right, you, 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 you give the Czechs a nation state eventually. It's called Czechoslovakia, but it's actually a Czech nation state. Well, how do the Slovaks feel about that? It's a can of words and one which is frighteningly violent, which, which is based upon hatred. Um, there is nothing, nothing pretty whatsoever about 19th century nationalism. And, and in that sense, the Napoleonic Wars, and it was really Napoleonic Wars which did it, um, they, they opened a Pandora's box, which, which Europe continues to pay for right up until 1945. And indeed, there have been resurgences of it since in Yugoslavia and mercifully with, 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 with far less bloodshed, uh, almost no bloodshed, in fact, Spain. Why do you think that's the case, that the Napoleonic Wars act as a catalyst for that, Charles? Because for folks who know about Linda Coley's work, she argues that this is the continuation of a process, isn't it? And that, you know, so she starts her work in, what is it, 1700 and takes it all the way through to something like 1839. So she sees this very much as a, a longer term transition. But if I've, if I've read you correctly, what you're suggesting is that 
this becomes a flashpoint at which people really start to think about these things. It, it, Why would you say that's that, that Linda, Linda Colley herself argues that the French wars from 1793 to 1815 uh, an absolutely fundamental building brick of and now this is where it gets difficult, British nationalism. You know, because there are all sorts of questions to be asked about, about the United Kingdom. You know, what exactly are we? But certainly she herself raised great emphasis on the, on the revolutionary and Napoleonic period. Um, if you take Spain, national Catholicism, and the, 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 the doctrine which was the bedrock of Franco-Spain, that comes directly from the, the, the Spanish national myth, the idea of the Dos de Mayo and all of that. German nationalism. Um, if you take the, start off with, with, with the fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, because German nationalism, like most other nationalisms, starts off as being a cultural movement. It's all about the preservation of German traditions. They don't have to worry about preserving the German language, perhaps, but certainly preserving German folk traditions. That's what that's what the, the Grimm fairy tales are all about, and they and they get published in um, Beatrice eighteen oh six. Yeah. Hey, how about that then? Okay. And that folk tradition you can find in German nationalism right up to Nazism. Anti-Semitism. Again, as a feature of German nationalism in the Napoleonic Wars. 1812, David. Thank you. Thank you. And there was me hoping, hoping that you were agreeing that it was 1806, but never mind. But the, the point I'm making is, is that wherever you look, the Napoleonic Wars gives this massive boost to a movement which is frankly one of the most destructive that the European continent has ever experienced. Alex, let me bring you in um, in relation to anything that you want to say in response to what Beatrice or Charles have said, but also in relation to that kind of original thrust of this, which is you know, the, the ripple effects, if you will, of, of this period. Yeah, I think I agree with both of them. So my, my answer will be very short. <laughs> um, I, I think they have, they've raised very important and pertinent points about the lasting legacy of Napoleonic Wars, which is complex, which is uh, long-term, and uh, a lot of it is, is kind of unpleasant to even contemplate, in, in, especially from a modern uh, point of view. Uh, what I will, you know, in, in, in what I would like to do is more move our attention to a areas outside Europe, because in your question, you talked about the colonial legacy, and there as well, uh, right? Napoleonic Wars leaves us with a tremendous um, legacy, uh, both in terms of uh, emancipation of, of what used to be colonies, especially in the Western Hemisphere, but um, also, uh, but also with acquisition by European powers of new territories uh, that were treated like colonial uh, addendums to the imperial domains. And that's 
you know, if we go beyond the South Africa, the traditional kind of confines of South Africa and India, we can talk about territories like in the Caucasus, my own homeland, right? As a Georgian, I have to uh, plug that part in. Um, or the, you know, the profound legacy Napole uh, Napoleonic era had on the Middle East, uh, which left uh, enormous vacuum that will be filled in and, and, and will pro produce reverberations well throughout the 19th century. Or even for the United States, since I've lived here long enough to consider myself an American, the Napoleonic period is a crucial element in that reassessment what this fledgling American Republic is about. And increasingly, the answer is uh, uh, imperial in nature. Uh, it's imperial in terms of uh, American uh, increased appetites for what used to be the Louisiana Territory, which Napoleon did sell to uh, uh, Americans. But uh, if he hadn't, one wonders uh, what would have happened since there were plenty of uh, senior officials and senior voices in the American government advocating a more forceful takeover of this territory. And of course, later on, the, the struggle for the fate of Canada uh, really is determined during the Napoleonic era. And the sense of Americanism, this exceptionalism is only reinforced by the struggle against the former imperial masters uh, um, in, in the War of 1812. So, uh, it, you know, in my own in the recent research, this, this is the framework I'm advocating is broadening our horizons and uh, and, and, and moving away from the emphasis on Europe, which is an epicenter of many of these power struggles. But um, considering the non-European areas, viewpoints enrich our understanding of this period uh, so much better. And Linda Corley that uh, Charles and, and Zach and, and Beatrice were referencing to in, in her last book, is she certainly does that, right? She moves away from the constitutional narratives within Europe to encompass a far greater and uh, far wider uh, narrative and, and, and discussion, which, which shows you how impactful this period was. Can I just pick up on, on the Americas? Um, if you think about Latin America, um, who is the figure who comes to dominate, at least metaphorically, um, post-independence Latin America? You know, what do you see emerging in, 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 in country after country after country, you see pseudo-Napoleons. Um, you know, the, 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 these are states which have problems of integration. They have um, problems uh, which are essentially based on race because, you, of course, you have the, the Indian majority. Um, you also have very large um, slave populations in, in particularly up in the northeast in, in Brazil, Cuba, and so forth. You have elites who are corrupt, self-seeking, quarrelsome, governments which are unstable, and what emerges? Military government. Notes, Santa Ana, as in as in the Alamo and all that business. He's called the Napoleon of the West. Alex, you're frowning, but I do believe he was. No, no, I, no, I, I agree with you on that. The, the question I have for you is the question I think you raised at the beginning of this discussion, saying that if Napoleon had been shot on the Lodi at Arcola, the wars would have continued, would have still taken place in Europe. So my counter argument was, would be to that. 
if Napoleon didn't invade in Spain, the Spanish Empire, how long the Spanish Empire would have resisted, you know, endured, knowing the historical processes that were taking place in colonies. In that context, if the Spanish Empire had collapsed, well, would you have the rise of strong men? Oh, I mean, probably. Um, the question is whether the Spanish Empire would have collapsed um, because, I mean, I, you know, I would base myself on, on the work of people like John Lynch um, in the Spanish-American revolutions and things like that. And um, what John Lynch argues is that, is that prior to 1810, yes, of course, there were tensions, there were quarrels about this, there were quarrels about that. Godoy's policy in the Americas had, hadn't been, well, had been downright damaging in many ways to, to colonial interests. The, the wider history of the, what's called the Second Conquest, launched by, by uh, King Charles III, um, much more intense exploitation of the empire. All of this had caused tremendous tensions. But, but Don Lynch basically argues that you, know, you really cannot see any significant move towards support for independence. What does it is, is the destruction of the Junta Central in Spain in 1810. You know, it looks like, because I mean, the whole of Andalusia falls in a fortnight. You know, Seville, Granada, Malaga, they all capitulate virtually without resistance. The only place which holds out is Cadiz. And nobody can quite believe that that's going to hold out for very long. And when news reaches Latin America, or Spanish America, everywhere, well, no, not quite everywhere, but in a number of places, Venezuela, um, what becomes, what becomes um, Argentina, you get revolutions, which are essentially the local elite saying, holy hell, Spain has collapsed. We're, on our, or we're all on our own, and we've got to take the future in our own hands. Um, Let me come in then with uh, a final kind of point of discussion, because we're, we're heading in this direction anyway, which is about stability, whether it be in post-war Europe or whether it be in the wider post-Napoleonic War world. I know Beatrice is particularly a guru in this area. Does Europe, does the world become more or less politically stable? And I'm thinking here both about foreign policy, but also about domestic policy, this rise of revolutions, um, this rise of independence movements that we're starting to speak of. What are your thoughts? Beatrice, do you want to start us off here? Yes, I, I really struggle with, with responding to that question. The subtitle of my book was How Europe Became Secure After 1815. I got a lot of criticism of people saying it didn't become secure at all. Well, my point was how did it become secure and to what extent was it secure? What kind of security? Then for the elites, it was very secure. And for the mercantilist uh, companies, it was secure as well. Uh, for the people with the new Bien National, it, it became very secure. It, became, it didn't become uh, didn't become secure for the minorities, for the people that were bereft of their national territories, for the rebels. Uh, uh, so it, it was a very ambivalent, genus-faced kind of security was created. Yes, it was a kind of security in being the absence of great wars that, that did last a couple of decades. 
But if I may go back and respond this question in connection with colonialism, imperialism, I think that's also for research a very important angle to probe deeper into because also in historiography you have the people studying Napoleon, people studying foreign policy in Europe and people studying colonialism, imperialism and it, it really isn't pretty much tied together and I think you should make the case that after 1815 this all came together, domestic to foreign, the colonialist, imperialist, in the sense that Europe was now tasked or enabled to, 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 to go for the grand schemes. Well, Napoleon had showed how it could be done. And then the countries of Europe, they felt that they had to step in his footsteps. They were the ones who vanquished this great general. And for example, in the 1820s in Russia, there was this notion that what Alexander I had done, Nicholas should do as well. And that's where the Russians unleashed great campaigns of internal colonization, imperialism, in the direction of Kazakhstan or the Stan republics. They were colonized because the Russians felt it was now their duty to do so. If you take uh, the UK in the 20s and the 30s, there was more jingoism, uh, even turning to the point that uh, Lord Palmerston launched the first Afghan war, also in against Russia uh, to a certain extent. And Wellington himself, you know, I tweeted about this, Wellington himself thought this extremely stupid. He says, this won't work, this won't wash. It will be a perennial march against Afghanistan. And he didn't see where this imperialism came from because his generation had been reluctant, a reluctant empire constrained in, in fighting those wars. After that came uh, the generals, the politicians who felt mobilized or even um, goaded by their populists. You were pointing to nationalism, Charles. It was the liberal new elites. It was the people that climbed the barricades in Europe vying for more liberty and freedom. Those were also the people, the bourgeoisie, the, 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 the liberal elite who invested in, in grand railways and steamships in new imperialist affairs elsewhere. So yeah. the liberalism, the, 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 the grand engineering schemes that came after Napoleon were liberal and led to more imperialism. So the Europe worked together meant that there was more imperialist mayhem outside of Europe. So did the world become more stable? In that sense, it didn't. Alex, let me bring you straight in. Yeah, I, I agree with her. Um, and, and Beatrice has written eloquently on this subject. And um, it, it, it is a moment where, um, you know, again, it shows you the complexity of history, that history should not be looked upon in simple terms. And it's always full of nuance. It's always full of undercurrents and, and diversity. So even, even within Europe, uh, we oftentimes, you know, hear that end of Napoleonic Wars and the Vienna settlement brought about three decades of stability and peace. But we know that that is also um, not entirely true. So we don't have an all-out wars, but we have plenty of instability and certainly uh, apprehension and concern, as, as Beatrice has shown in her own research. And of course, looking outside Europe, you see that, if anything, the Napoleonic legacy, not of Napoleon, but of the period, the legacy is of continued instability, infighting, turmoil, misery, and war. Charles already uh, broached the subject of the post-Napoleonic events in Latin, in, in, in Spanish uh, realm in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, for a decade, uh, and I'm, I'm being very generous, a decade, uh, the media decade, uh, being of nothing but continued violence and, 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 and misery. And same can be said of 
other parts of the world, especially in the Middle East, uh, and, and European uh, efforts, which were, uh, as, as Beatrice mentioned a minute ago, uh, um, done under the aegis of the liberalism, and the aegis of development and growth, were imperial, uh, that bred further instability. I and mean, the second half of the 19th century can be hardly described as, as a stable, uh, whether in Europe or, or outside of it. So it, it is a complex subject. But I think well worth, uh, you know, that complexity in itself is very rewarding to contemplate. It just gives you a lot of things to, to, to ponder on the, what it is that humans, um, you know, the, the complexity of this human experience, how even given the opportunity to settle things, um, we are oftentimes, um, you know, we oftentimes rise to the occasion. And Charles, the final word from you. Yeah. Um... The legacy of Napoleon is very quickly confronted by, and indeed overshadowed by, um, a development which was already in train at the time of his rule, but which is only just getting going and doesn't really grip the whole of Europe in its tentacles, if you like, until about 1870, um, when its effects finally reach out almost everywhere because of the development of the railway system. What I'm talking about, of course, is the Industrial Revolution. Um, yes, I, I, I certainly believe that the um, Napoleonic era left Europe, and indeed the world, in a, a pretty unstable state. At the same time, I feel that the Napoleonic system was very, very ill-equipped to deal with the impact of the industrial revolution and the industrial the impact of the industrial of the industrial revolution was of course very complex you can come up with different narratives you can come up with one narrative which says that which tells us that absolutely every artifact we can see um you know behind our mugshots in this in this zoom thing Everything, everything that we see, the very clothes that we wear, the glasses that I've got on, that Jack's got on, they're all products of the Industrial Revolution. The, the medical care we, we enjoy, you know, what's got us through COVID, all the rest of it, and there's, a, and there's a very, very positive message. It's also, of course, a message about um, female emancipation. It's, you know, it's about Beatrice being able to become the distinguished professor that she so deserves to be. They're a very positive message. The trouble is that running in parallel to that, and this was the aspect which I tended to, to stress in my teaching, is that you have a very, very dark story where instability, fear, confusion, chaos breeds ever-increasing levels of hatred, where nationalism becomes ever more hateful, where racism becomes ever more acute. And what you have is a very, very nasty, dark and horrific story which leads us straight from the Industrial Revolution gripping Europe 
his hands around his throat in 1870, straight to the horrors of the First World War. And then, and then still worse, from the First World War, straight to the horrors of Holocaust. And, and that, that, I, that was the, the narrative of my, of my European survey at, at Liverpool. It was, it was really the origins of the Holocaust, which is some... the greatest question which has to be dealt with by any historian. It's a sombre note to end on, but it is one that reflects the seriousness that has underpinned this discussion. And I'm so, I know we could talk for another two hours on this topic, but I'm conscious that, you know, you've got interviews lined up literally, you know, within minutes of, of ending this. So we are, I'm very sorry to say, going to have to, to call a halt on this one. I want to thank all of you ever so much for your input uh, this evening. It has been a fascinating discussion, a nuanced discussion, one that's gone in so many different ways, but has been vibrant and has been a demonstration of how you can, and folks of Twitter, take note, please, and also of Facebook. You can disagree about Napoleon and his legacy and still be pleasant about it, as I'm forever yeah. chastising people. I do, before you go, though, want to plug your work and also encourage people to follow you on social media. So, Beatrice, um, is your Twitter handle at Beatrice de Graff? Is it as simple as that? Okay, Beatrice is nodding in confirmation, fantastic. And Beatrice, as I've said already, but I make no apologies for saying again, wrote Fighting Terror After Napoleon, How Europe Became Secure After 1815. And it is well worth getting a, a, a hold of a copy. Um, Alex, I'm trying to remember yours off the top of my head. I just know that I can type Alex Mikabaridze into Twitter and find you very easily. Uh, it's at a Mikabaridze. So uh, as long as you can spell my last name, you, you'll find me. <laughs> Fantastic. And Alex wrote amongst a whole host of uh, works on the Russian perspective of the Napoleonic Wars, which is an area that we do need to uh, have a discussion about at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future. Uh, Alex wrote the Napoleonic Wars, a global history, which has been very, very highly regarded um, by those who've read and reviewed it. So folks go and investigate that. And Charles, um, I believe yours is as simple as at Charles Esdale. Your Twitter? Um, yes, I see, I see no reason to be ashamed of my neck. <laughs> Absolutely. And Charles's works, amongst a whole host of others, include Napoleon's Wars, which, you know, the name won't surprise you, given his, his stance on Napoleon. You know, it's, it's all down to Napoleon. It's all Napoleon's fault. Um, and the Peninsula War, a new history. Alex, Charles, Beatrice, thank you ever so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. I, I, I want to thank Zach for the opportunity and Charles and Beatrice, wonderful discussion. I, I do appreciate it. Before you go, just a quick one from me. Remember to like and subscribe. That makes a massive difference in terms of the algorithms that help to spread the word on the Napoleonicist. If you are keen, then you can also leave a review. Preferably a really nice one would be good, but, you know, be honest. And also remember to share with your friends. If somebody else who you know is going to be interested in the content, then please do pass the word along the line. It all helps. As ever, if you are interested in supporting the podcast financially, check out the links in the description. There are a host of options, so from one-off tips to becoming a regular supporter, with perks in the supporters field on Patreon for the different tiers of membership. If you just want to leave a one-off tip though, then go to the Kofi link. And as ever, I'm sure you know already, because I bang on about it enough, that your generosity is massively 
appreciated, whatever the size of your support. As ever, a huge shout out to my Patreon supporters who keep the podcast going through their subscriptions. They do get, you know, nice little perks like discounts at publishers and they even have their own Discord server now where they're chatting away even as I record this. But a particular thanks to my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Gerb Brown, Jane Davis, Marcus Cribb and Bob Burnham, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Jeff Maple, Mark Dewhurst, Jim Getz, Stephen Coulson, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill and Rob Griffith. Join me in a fortnight when I will be talking to you about a rather important project, a charity that I've been setting up off the back of the Bones of Burgos, and you'll actually hear somebody slightly different in the presenter's hot seat for that episode, because I can't exactly interview myself, that would be a little bit embarrassing. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends, stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.